You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. This podcast is brought to you by Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. In the third game of the 2004 season, Freddie Adu scored his first MLS goal. It came against DC United's arch rival, the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, and it set a record that may never be broken. At 14 years, 330 days old, Adu became the youngest player ever to score a goal in American professional soccer. I remember watching that game on TV, pumping my fist and thinking, okay, Freddie's on his way now. He may not be starting games yet, but now he won't have the pressure of having to get his first goal anymore. Heck, once he gets going, he might even score 10 to 15 goals this season. But I have to admit something. I didn't think much in those days about Freddie's race and what it meant, which is to say the rarity of black players and the non-existence of black superstars in American soccer. Maybe that's because I'm white. Maybe that's because I viewed Freddie as being more African than African-American. But I should have been asking questions. What did Freddie mean to the black community in the United States? Why is soccer so white in America? In a sports world that too often describes black athletes in any sport as having pace and power, speed and strength, did commentators adjust their language when Freddie showed skill? And was Freddie's race the reason behind people questioning his age, believing he was lying about his youth? Here was a young black boy in a white American sport being asked by white billionaire owners to effectively save their league. What was the impact of Freddie being young and black? Welcome to American Prodigy. I'm Grant Wall. Even though Freddie's first goal was one of those haphazard finishes you'd often see in MLS, ABC and ESPN showed Adu's first goal on a constant loop. Broadcasters like Rob Stone knew the goal wasn't a SportsCenter top 10 caliber highlight, but they sure acted like it was. Here he is making a very soft run, and there's poor defending, and the ball should have never gotten to him, and he just kind of slides it in from a few yards out, and we were forced to get excited about it. Still, Adu's first goal was the talk of his United teammates later that night, despite losing 3-2 to their bitter rival. At a bar getting drinks, without underage Freddie, of course, defender Mike Petke found himself commiserating with them about the defeat and about Freddie's performance. I remember talking to some of the guys over drinks that night, but I also remember, without coming out and saying it point-blankly, like, oh, we're so happy for Freddie. But we, we were happy. He's in small parts here and there justifying what the hype is about. When the final whistle blew that night, Adu had played 115 minutes of professional soccer across his first three games, all coming off the bench. 
the team had been trying to use Freddie strategically. Kevin Payne, who ran DC United, watched his coach Peter Novak change the team's formation to accentuate his skills. He switched to a 3-5-2 system on the field, which actually was perfect for Freddie. And Peter's vision was that Freddie would play on the right side of midfield where he could come inside onto his left foot. So that each time he went to his left to beat a player, he basically became more dangerous. It was exactly the position that Leon Messi ended up creating with Barcelona. And Peter saw it kind of the same way. You know, Freddie didn't really want that position. He wanted to play right in the middle of the field. And so that was always a little bit of a bone of contention. Adu wasn't the only one who thought DC United may not be utilizing his skills to their fullest. His U.S. under-17 coach, John Ellinger, thought the formation exposed Freddie's on-field deficiencies and limited his effectiveness. If you're playing against D.C. United and you're playing 3-5-2 and Freddie's playing at midfield, where are you going to attack? It's because you know that defensively, Freddie had this weakness as far as getting back and playing. So it was kind of like, Freddie, I just want you to be yourself. Being himself had worked for Adu on the field. At 14 years old, he had always faced players less talented than he was. That meant he had been able to take players on, score goals, and barely have to worry about defending. In youth tournaments, somebody like Jamie Watson always covered for him. I knew my role was to do all of the defending for Freddie and get the ball and pass it to Freddie. I very much knew he was Batman and I was Robin. In the pros, there was nobody to cover for Freddie's defensive lapses, which is something his U.S. under-20 coach Thomas Rongen remembers thinking Novak couldn't abide. With a Peter Novak in particular, out of a 3-5-2, uh, very dogmatic in terms of defending first and winning one nothing is fine, the Italian way. I don't think Freddie was even remotely close, ready for that step from Freddie be expressive, do your thing, to, hey, Freddie, when, when we lose the ball, you got to run back, you got to fucking defend, you got to give his width. He could cheat and still be the best player on the pitch for the 17s and 20s. He couldn't do it in MLS. Adu's unbalanced game meant he often had to come off the bench instead of starting. He was a change of pace player who could come on during the second half and provide a spark. His mental conditioning coach, Trevor Moad, tried to keep Freddie's mind right. For the first time in his life, he wasn't starting every game. Trevor helped me through being in and out of the lineup. He was always there. He was always trying to tell me, you know what? Don't let that dictate how you approach the game. Whether you're starting, whether you're coming off the bench, you just got to go in with that mentality, with that confidence and all that stuff. But what made Freddie a prodigy, his promise at an absurdly young age, made adjusting inside a team of adults extremely difficult. When LeBron James made his NBA debut at age 18, he had teammates just three years older than him. With Freddie Adu, there was a nearly seven-year age gap between him and his youngest teammate. Teammate Ben Olsen was fairly young at 26, but he was still 12 years older than Freddie, and he felt the difference most acutely in the locker room. He was 14 years old, going into a locker room with men uh, who had families. Those players were just in a different space in their lives than he was. I don't think any of us really knew how to deal with a 14-year-old phenom, whether or not to allow him to be a 14-year-old and talk and have fun and enjoy the game, or were we going to go out and kick the shit out of him every day of training and show him that's the way to learn and get better and, you know, we're going to tough love. 
And he was a fun player to be on the team at the time. He was a 14-year-old. Along with allowing Freddie to be a 14-year-old, teammates like Aleko Eskandaria needed a way being themselves around Freddie. Could they swear? Talk about their families? Drink? Can we, like, talk freely in the locker room? Like, how, like, how is this all going to work? And I don't think anyone had a blueprint or a game plan for that. But even when we tried to be respectful of him being, like, younger and trying to shelter him, he was the one that would kind of immerse himself and be like, literally say things like, is there a party going on this weekend? Like, what, what girls are coming? And you're like, dude, you're 14, right? Are you? Because, <laughs> like, I don't think you're allowed to hang out with us, man. For his part, 28-year-old Mike Petkey treated Freddie like a little brother. Good-natured banter included. It became a fun thing to go into a locker room and know that you're going to pick on Freddie. And, you know, and not, not in a cruel or mean way, well, for the most part. You're going to remind him every day that he's a superstar, you know, and, and hope that you're, you're, you're toughening him up, that he knows you're being sarcastic. He's 14 years old around guys who are legal to drink, a lot of guys who are single, who are going out, and he's a 14-year-old kid in a hotel room eating pizza and, and probably playing video games. Maybe some Friday nights, Freddie did pop in a copy of Halo and talk trash to his friends, but he was also a teenager with money, fame, and no school the next day. He wanted to hang with his teammates, even when maybe he shouldn't have been there. Especially if it was like after a game and we were going out, like us older guys, we had to kind of have a, make a decision and be like, as much as we love Freddie and like he wants to like come out with us, like he's a minor. We don't want to be responsible for having a minor with us at a nightclub or something like that. And now things go wrong and we're responsible. So we would resist and push away at first. And then somehow we'd see Freddie in the club. And <laughs> we're like, how did this happen? And then he had more clout and pull than us. As much as his teammates tried to adjust their locker room talk for a do, he didn't always adjust his behavior to fit them. DC United boss Kevin Payne remembers Freddie's youthful exuberance, sometimes rubbing people the wrong way. He was very loud and kind of boisterous, like a, like a 14-year-old would be. And there were times where the other guys didn't like that. That's not what they wanted. But he was too young to understand that and too young to recognize that this might really be pissing off these older guys when I'm too loud in the locker room or the shower or whatever. Anybody could see that Freddie was loud and vibrant and precocious and talented. But one thing nobody asked was if he was happy. It's something Mike Petke still thinks about. Maybe that time that I had to talk with him and I was messing around with him, should have put my arm around him and said, dude, you're 14. Are you enjoying yourself? Playing made Freddie happy, and he had chosen MLS over European developmental programs because he could get on the field sooner. But now he was coming off the bench in fits and starts. I was having fun, but deep down, I was also frustrated because I, I just wasn't playing as much. I wanted to play. I mean, I would start every now and then, but, you know, even when I had a good game when I started, I still wouldn't start the very next game. It was just, I was frustrated because of that. In Europe, he may have started for a club's youth team. And more importantly, that youth team would have had players closer to Adu's age. There weren't any in MLS. Thomas Rongen thinks it might have been easier for Adu to adjust and grow overseas. Uh, because MLS at that time is not a great developmental school. If you've known the kids or people perceived to be very mature for his age. Being a prodigy means being an outlier. 
MLS had never had a player like Adu and therefore hadn't developed the mechanisms to cater to his needs or develop his talent. Rob Stone could see they were winging it. MLS then was learning how to make pancakes and you're going to burn your first few pancakes and a couple are going to turn out good and a couple you're going to throw away. Back then, boy, you had a lot of hits, you had a lot of misses, and you just had this inevitable compare and contrast to the leagues overseas that are always viewed as better. Clubs overseas certainly did have proven systems for developing young talent. The closest thing to Freddie Adu in recent years for U.S. men's soccer is Christian Pulisic. Thanks to having a European Union passport, Pulisic was able to join the developmental program of Germany's Borussia Dortmund at age 15 and progress through the ranks there quickly, without facing nearly as much media attention at the start. And if you look at the better, you know, developmental teams in the world, be it Boca River, be it Ajax, be it Porto, be it and he would have made a natural vertical curve under 50, 18, under 19, get a sniff with the 21s, get a sniff with the first team. I think if he would have been in that environment, he could have probably been the best ever American player. Along with allowing him to grow with other talented teens, playing for youth teams in Europe would have slowed Freddie's rise to superstardom and the pressure that comes with it. Kerry Goldberg Trutanich wanted to redirect the focus of Freddie's celebrity back to the field. I think at times it was too much too soon and like we should have just had him focus on soccer. I could have opened up my mouth and said, Rich, we need to scale back a little. Let this kid just focus on soccer. Ellinger could have put his foot down and said, Richard, no more. He's got to focus on soccer. Peter Novak could have said that. We all could have said that. We all have culpability in where Freddie is today. For his part, Freddie didn't speak out against it either. He didn't say it was too much too soon. But what do you expect from a 14-year-old thrust overnight into superstardom? When I got in the league, we had all this hoopla, this off-the-field stuff was cool to me. I think it did get to a point, though, where I was like, damn, I I wish I didn't have to do all this. Because every city we went to, I had to do a uh, conference call before. And then when I get there, you got to do meet and greets. You got to do this, got to do photo ops, you got to do this. It was just... Ah, you know, like, I just wish I didn't have to go through all of that all the time, you know, during my first couple of years. These were the important years that I, if if I could have just, just focused more on just playing soccer, the trajectory of my career would probably be different. Honestly, it, it would have been much, much, much better for my career. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle and bustle all the time. And all of us could stand to hit that reset button now and again. And when you do, make sure you do it with a nice cold Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment straight from the Rockies. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. So next time you're able to sit at a baseball stadium, the sun's hot, and that vendor walks by, say, sir, I'd like a nice cold Coors Light. Coors Light's the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you need to hit that reset button, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company in Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Guys, getting older isn't always fun, but it could be. And Roman is here to help. 
With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation for erectile dysfunction and hair loss, all from the comfort and privacy of your own home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet, so complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash Prodigy now to get $15 off your first month. That's GetRoman.com slash Prodigy. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. Elsewhere in the world, Freddie might have been able to focus more on soccer. In Europe and South America, Freddie would have been a really promising talent who might develop into a superstar. His prodigy, in part, hinged on the fact that he was a singular talent in America. For his part, Kevin Payne had an idea to try to show him that. I had gone down to Argentina at some point and talking to the president of Boca, Mauricio Macri, and I asked him if Freddie could come down there in the offseason and train at Boca. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be great for him. You know, he would understand how much talent there is in other places and how hard it is and, and what those guys have to escape in order to succeed. If he goes to Boca, he's not, there's going to be six guys there that can do all the same things on the ball that he does. Except every one of them would chew Freddie's leg off for an opportunity to get out of where they live in Buenos Aires. But in the end, the training stint in Argentina never happened. In South America and Europe, and in most places around the world, soccer is a working class sport, a sport of opportunity for everyone. But in the United States, soccer is mainly a sport of the middle and upper middle classes where participation takes money in addition to talent. That shuts out a lot of communities from the sport, including large numbers of black Americans. Clint Smith is a writer for The Atlantic and one of the U.S.'s leading voices on racial justice. But as a kid who happened to be the same age as Freddie Adu, he was one of the few black Americans playing soccer in his hometown of New Orleans. With golf and tennis and soccer, the common thread is that they all require a lot of financial investment to participate in and to participate in at an elite level. And as a result, just like don't grow up playing it or you never begin to consider it because you don't see anybody else around in your community playing it in part because of decades and decades of state sanctioned segregation and policy that makes it so that black people are disproportionately living in poverty relative to white Americans. In the same way that Freddie's youth made him an outlier, his race set him apart in an American soccer landscape that was largely white. According to the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport, in 2004, MLS had 17% black players compared to the NBA 76% and the NFL 69%. The U.S. men's national team at the time had black players like Kobe Jones and Ernie Stewart but nobody who could claim to be a superstar. Young black children in America had idols in basketball, football, and baseball. Now, in Freddie, they could see themselves playing soccer. Representation makes an enormous difference in terms of what young people are able to imagine for themselves. I can speak personally. For me, it made me feel less lonely or less isolated. It made me feel as if there was somebody who looked like me, somebody who could have been me, who was taking this sport that I had always been told in some ways didn't belong to me, right? The sport that in some ways I was an intruder and it always felt like I was 
breaking some rule for the potential face of U.S. soccer to be this young black kid who, again, looked like he could have been any of my friends, uh, for me was a really uh, heartening and important moment and, and in some ways kept me going in the sport. As much as Freddie couldn't be fully prepared at 14 for the rigors of being a professional soccer player, he also wasn't aware how much his rise to stardom would resonate in the Black community. What's more, Smith says, being Black was likely one reason why so many thought of Freddie as older than his years. It's impossible, I think, to disentangle Freddie as a young Black boy being one of the highest paid, if not the highest paid player in MLS at that time from the way that he might have been received by his teammates, the way he might have been treated by the media, and the way that he might have been rendered an adult in certain ways that are not necessarily the way that like a young 14 or 15 year old white boy would be in the same way. There's vast social science on the way that like young black boys and young black teenagers are uh, understood to be men uh, long before their white counterparts are. This is where the American part of being an American prodigy comes into play. Two factors that set Freddie apart in American soccer, his youth and his race, are uniquely intertwined in the U.S. Freddie may have been too busy adapting to a league that wanted him to be a man to question why they treated him as one, but he soon learned what it meant to be a symbol to the Black community in the United States. He represented an opportunity many Black children didn't even know they had. People that knew nothing about soccer knew who Freddie Adu was. That was mostly Black people. They didn't watch soccer like that. They didn't really know soccer like that, but they all knew who I was. I would go do appearances in the inner city schools and, and all that stuff. One kid was like, I want to be a soccer player just like you. And I'm like, have you ever played soccer before? And he's like, no, but I'm going to start now. And then when he said that, that's when I realized, oh man, you could be like a representative of, of what they think they can achieve in the sport. I was just saw myself as just an African kid that came to America, just knew how to play soccer and just kind of like made it like that. I didn't know what kind of impact that it would make on actual Black American kids or Black American people in general. One of the people Freddie influenced was future Portland Timbers forward Jeremy Ibobasi, who was just seven years old when Freddie made his MLS debut. Ibobasi, like Freddie, was born overseas to parents with African roots, and his family also emigrated to the Maryland suburbs of the nation's capital. When he got stateside, he saw that soccer wasn't as open as it was abroad and saw what Freddie could mean to black children trying to break into the sport. On a very fundamental level, seeing that representation, seeing a black kid could be the superstar, that he could be such a marketing phenom. Again, it, it reinforced this idea that I was in the right sport uh, and that there was a path for me moving forward. I've come from Cameroon to Madagascar and, and France in a way. Uh, where soccer culture is huge. But I did notice that a lot of the communities that I played in when I was young didn't necessarily have uh, black kids uh, that I was playing with. So seeing uh, seeing Freddie take the field that one day and kind of watching his career, especially early on, has reinforced that idea that, again, in this country, you can make it and you could be loved making it in this sport. It wasn't just football or basketball um, or being a rapper, which is a stereotype that we're all trying to break down. Freddie, just seven years older than Jeremy, wasn't thinking much about the complexities of racial demographics either, but they affected him all the same. Freddie's technical skill helped him avoid being the subject of some of the most deeply ingrained racist stereotypes surrounding soccer. 
but even at the highest level internationally, black soccer players are talked about differently than white ones. It drives me nuts the way announcers like to emphasize the pace and power of black players and rarely say they have a high soccer IQ the way you hear other players described. Every time you watch a World Cup, whether it's men's or women's, at some point you'll hear a white announcer describe an African team as, quote, disorganized or undisciplined and talk about the supposedly stabilizing impact that a white head coach has brought to the team. I was hearing this stuff when I started working in 1996. I still hear it today. You could literally make a drinking game out of it, a depressing and pathetic drinking game. But this phenomenon isn't limited to just soccer. We hear absurd racist stereotypes in American football, especially with black quarterbacks. But it's also common in basketball, and for that matter, just about every sport. Clint Smith is all too familiar with it. I think what is interesting about soccer and what is interesting about golf and tennis is that for many white people, these were seen as sports that required a level of grace and elegance that black people did not possess. We see it every World Cup where the African teams are talked about in ways where they're like, look how strong and felt like the pace and the power and the, and the raw ability in ways that the Polish team is never talked about. Obviously, speed and strength and grace, elegance and technique are not at all mutually exclusive. Um, and the best players of any demographic or of any nationality represent having both of those skills. But beyond that, I think we Black people, given everything that we have experienced in this country over the last 400 years, love celebrating one another and the success that one another experiences, especially. And I think it's it's amplified and magnified in context in which we have been told or that it has been implied to us that we were never supposed to succeed in the first place. In addition to the buzz around Freddie that MLS had been creating, he was also drawing attention and support from the Black community, a community traditionally outside of MLS's sphere. So, of course, brands took advantage of the new market and called his agents, including Kerry Goldberg Trutanich. You had like outlets like a BET finally taking notice while MTV was still MTV and you had different like daily shows from them and you had folks like Sway who were probably more into traditional sports they're now like, let's bring Freddie in to do Total Request Live. You had different outlets giving soccer and MLS that opportunity because of Freddie. Look, I represent Kobe Jones. I love Kobe and I truly believe without a Kobe Jones, there isn't a Freddie Adu. But what Freddie did marketing-wise opened up the door for our entire league, I think. We did see Black America open up the door to soccer. Black Americans across the country tuned into soccer, some of them for the first time, in the same way that they did to watch Tiger Woods play golf and the Williams sisters play tennis. Jeremy Bobasi remembers being a seven-year-old kid in Maryland and everyone turning on the TV to see Freddie. I just remember everyone being so emotional in a great way, seeing a 14-year-old phenom taking the pitch uh, and then that he was from a neighborhood similar to Bethesda. And that gave me this childish sense of jubilation knowing that professional soccer players come from my neighborhood too. And really for me to see a, a black kid at 14, I think now I realize how young 14 is, being 23 and still feeling somewhat young even though I know I'm not. Uh, now I realize the depth of how challenging what he was doing is. 
That challenge was real for Freddy on multiple levels. A few games into his first season, Freddy still hadn't given his fans much to cheer about. Smith, who go on to play soccer at Davidson College before becoming a writer, was watching the games, hoping for an adieu breakthrough. I wanted him to be successful. And I think the first couple games, he like, he was playing fine. He was doing all right. Uh, but there hadn't been those those highlight real moments that you wait for from somebody who was getting the level of attention that he was getting. And I'll always remember that goal he scored against the LA Galaxy. In the eighth game of the 2004 MLS season, DC United played the LA Galaxy. United had dug itself a hole against the Galaxy at the half, and Aleko Eskandarian remembers coach Peter Novak wasn't happy. We went down 4 nothing in that game at halftime. We kind of had this like come to Jesus moment with Peter. And he's like, all right, you guys want to be lazy and not mark, whatever. We're going to match up one-on-one all over the field. And on this board, I'm putting down who you're opposite is. That player that you're matched up with is your responsibility. And he was like, let's see who's going to win. I don't care about the score. I don't care about anything. Let's just find out who's going to win their individual battles. In the 60th minute, Freddie came off the bench. He had his player to mark, and he had the words of his mental conditioning coach, Trevor Moad, in his head. I said, look, it's frustrating when you don't play, but your behavior, whether you're playing or not, are creating the physical engine that, and the confidence that are going to give you your chance to be successful. We talked about it, but just how staying engaged the whole game then coming in, making that impact, was going to build up the minutes. Seven minutes later, Freddie did it. He sort of brought the ball down the right side of the field the way that he had multiple stepovers, cut inside, feigned, cut inside again, and then curled it to the top left-hand corner. And it was what we had been waiting for. It was what I had been waiting for. Pure magic. Pure Freddy. Technique, style, speed, savvy. A goal that few players in MLS could have scored. Everyone seems to remember each tiny detail of that goal, except the player who scored it. Honestly, like I don't even remember how I scored certain goals during that year because I just, when I think about that year, it was just like the craziness of it, to be honest with you. I like to think it was moments like that goal that earned Freddie a place in the MLS All-Star game that year. But that's not really true. He ended up with three goals before the All-Star break and wasn't voted in by fans or coaches to the All-Star team. Yet, there he was, an All-Star. It is the ninth annual MLS All-Star game and the sixth time that we have seen an East versus West format as today Major League Soccer celebrates its past, its present, and its future. How did it happen? Well, the MLS commissioner, Don Garber, always had two commissioner's picks, players he could choose unilaterally to bring to the All-Star game. Usually it was for commercial reasons. And so he made it do one of his two picks to be in DC for the festivities. The league wanted to leverage Freddie's star power and to do endorser Pepsi was sponsoring the game. They even had Sierra Mist logos on both sets of uniforms. I was at that All-Star game. In fact, I was with Freddie in his hotel room for an interview. I hadn't met up with him for a few months, and he seemed tired, ground down by the season and all the demands thrust on him. We were watching ESPN, and Alexi Lalas was on a SportsCenter update, and that's when he said the only way Freddie Adu could live up to the expectations was to win a World Cup. I turned and looked at Freddie, and he simply shook his head and laughed a little. It was a weary laugh. He had just turned 15 years old. 
Still, he had reasons to smile. For now. You could see that things started to weigh on him more and more as we uh, as we went along. And not so much the soccer part, it was everything that came with it, the responsibility of being who Freddie was at that moment. And I saw that weigh on him more and more as it went along. That's next time on American Prodigy. This Blue Wire podcast was hosted, reported, and co-written by me, Grant Wall. Harry Swartout produced and co-wrote the show. Reed Redmond and Jeffrey Besoy provided production assistance. Brian Decker scored the podcast and engineered the sound. John Yales and Peter Moses executive produced the show. If you liked American Prodigy, subscribe and give us a rating and a review. It helps the podcast get to more people. Or you can go all 2004 on us and simply tell a friend.